Now, as we look at Acts chapter 2 today, we need to recognize that there is a longing that is taking place amid Jesus' followers. A time of waiting. And they are simply waiting for what Jesus promised. The comforter, the counselor, or as the text will call it, the, the paraclete. You see, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the ministry of Jesus, the people of God were promised that something special was coming. They were promised that God's spirit would be given in a powerful and unique way. And today, we see what could be described as the reversal of Babel, when the Holy Spirit comes down onto those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, if you didn't grow up in church and you don't know the story of Babel, um, there, if you were to go back to Genesis, which is the first book in your Bible, and you, you go to chapter 11, you're going to see this story of humanity um, united together to, to become more like God. And they do this by constructing a tower because for some reason in their minds they think, man, if we construct this tower, we're going to be just like God. I don't know if it's like the vantage point or what, but this is what's going on in their minds. Now here's the kicker. At this point, everyone, earth, everyone on earth, they're all speaking the same language. Uh, and with that, also, God even says that nothing that they propose would be impossible at this point in history. So, what does God do? He confuses their language. He intentionally creates a language barrier for them so they would stop trying to be like him. They would stop trying to be like God. He wants to hinder their progress for the sake of abolishing sin. In today's text, we're going to see him reverse this for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of showing God's power through, uh, throughout the world. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. So please open up your Bible, open up your device, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, if you have a Bible and you're like, I don't know where that is, no worries. If you open the, the table of contents at the front, you'll see two major sections. You'll see an Old Testament and a New Testament. Old Testament is everything before Jesus came. New Testament is the life of Jesus and the start of the church. And since Acts is all about the start of the church, it's in the New Testament. And when you get there, the large numbers are the chapters. Smaller numbers are the verses. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, uh, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? 
Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Let us stop there. Let's do just a little bit of review of Acts. I mean, it's one chapter, so it's not much. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus appeared to his followers. He told them to wait for God's promise to be fulfilled. Then he, he ascended, he left earth, and the disciples prayed and prepared for what was to come. Now in this passage, the moment is here. God is pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people. That is what we, we come to in, in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the miraculous event itself. Then there's Peter's explanation of what is happening. Now today, we're only talking about the event itself. So as we reflect on the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit, let's realize a few characteristics of the coming of the Spirit. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. There are four characteristics that we're going to look at that are pertinent to us today. First, we need to recognize that the coming of the Holy Spirit points straight back to the Old Testament. The entirety of the death, burial, resurrection, and Pentecost is consistent with the Old Testament Jewish calendar. Here's what I mean by that. There's, there's the Passover. The Passover is a holiday that the Jews celebrate to remember when they were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them out of Egypt. There was a, um, uh, they had to sacrifice a lamb. It was a Passover lamb. And the blood of the lamb would be put over their doorposts. And then the angel of death would fly over. And if there was blood on the doorposts, the angel of death passed over without anyone being harmed in their home. And uh, alternatively, if there was not blood on the doorpost, then there, there was death in that home. So when you fast forward to Jesus' life, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. And his, his blood that was shed covers us, and we no longer taste death. Sin has no grip on us. And so there's this Jewish holiday of Passover, and it was meant to, to be a picture of what was to come in the life of Jesus. Then second, we have the Feast of Firstfruits. And this pictures Jesus' resurrection, because one day too, we will be raised to new life, to live in the presence of God forever. And that's in the future, but Jesus was the first for that to happen. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we have Passover, we have the feast uh, of firstfruits, and then, um, like I said, there's Pentecost, which is the holiday that is taking place in this text. Um, now, Pentecost is an Old Testament Jewish holiday when the Holy Spirit makes his appearance, and that's what we see. Now, Pentecost actually means 50th, and that's, it. that's 50th in Koine Greek, and it refers to the Jewish feast called Shavuot, which is held 50 days after the second day of Passover. It's also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest, and you'll see that in Exodus. Now, people were supposed to travel to Jerusalem, wherever they were. If you were Jewish, you would travel to Jerusalem with gifts and offerings for this holiday of Pentecost. And this feast celebrated the harvest and was filled with a ton of rejoicing. And it was always held in mid-June. And it was the largest pilgrimage feast filling Jerusalem with visitors. Because it was required. If you were Jewish, you, you celebrate this holiday in Jerusalem. Now, to be, to be clear, this orchestration with Jesus' death and his resurrection and, and the outpouring of God's spirit 
Now, this all being in line with, with Jewish calendar and Jewish holidays, that's not by accident. That's God divinely orchestrating this all together. Like these things happened in history. They're celebrated throughout time and they all point to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of God's spirit. This is God making himself known to his people that he is a God who keeps his promises. So that's the first thing. God was divinely orchestrating it all. Second thing. It's rooted in the Old Testament, but we have to understand that it is indeed supernatural. When we read this passage, we cannot help but realize that Luke intended for us to know that this situation was a supernatural act of God. Thank goodness Luke was as detailed of a writer as he was. Because he paints us a picture that's like, yes, that is, there's no way, there's nothing ordinary that can explain this. Like the things that happen in this passage, they don't happen normally. Pay attention to how Luke describes these events in verse 2. He says, a sound like a violent rushing wind was present. The sound that they experienced was inside of the house, and it, it filled the house. Now, if you can imagine for a moment, this sound was probably overwhelming. It was probably awe-inspiring. And I guarantee you that those in that place knew that this sound was not natural. It, it was supernatural. And we also see what are described in verse 3 as tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Now, we don't know exactly what these looked like. I doubt any of us could, could accurately represent it in any sort of like picture or painting or what, what have you. It's likely that Luke is doing his best that he can to describe this unusual supernatural flames that were present in that place. Also, let's remember how many people are present in this house. We remember from verse 15 of chapter 1 that there were about 120 people present. And from what we can tell from the most natural reading of chapter 2, verse 3, there were likely tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on all 120 or so people. Now, some have suggested that these tongues of fire rested only on the 12 apostles, but I don't understand the passage that way. So just imagine how incredible and supernatural this event would be for this flame to come, this mighty wind rushing into a closed place and, and, and a flame that splits into 120. Like, it's super, there's no way of explaining that naturally. We also see that this event is marked by fire. That's important. It's often an indication of the presence of God. We see God reveal himself in fire to Moses in the burning bush. And we see God guide his people with the pillar of fire when he led them out of Egypt. And we see God show up with fire with Elijah on Mount Carmel when he consumed the sacrifice before the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. John the baptizer said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy of removing his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This event is marked as a supernatural event by the fire that was present. And then in verse 4, it brings even more clarity to the fact that this was a God thing. Verse 4 says, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It was the Holy Spirit of God who made this possible. 
It was the Spirit of God who enabled them to speak in tongues, which we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Church, it was only by God that these things happened. We must also realize that if something incredible is, is, is supposed to happen in our presence, in our community, then it's only going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will only happen in a supernatural way. It's not going to be by our means, by our will, by our power. We don't need natural-born leaders and natural giftedness in our church. We need Holy Spirit-empowered godliness and devotion from our leaders. We don't need human charisma and wisdom. We need God's Spirit to guide and to direct us. We don't need more of what the culture has to offer. We need what only God can give us through his Holy Spirit. We need his guidance. We need his provision. We need his anointing, his comfort, his conviction, unity, correction, love, mercy, and power. We need the supernatural Holy Spirit of God. That was the second thing. The third characteristic that we can find in this event is that this, this experience was astounding. It says in the text, astounding. Why was this astounding? What exactly is happening here when the Bible says they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them? I want to pause for a moment because anytime tongues is brought up in church, uh, people have some pretty passionate views and convictions about it. Maybe for you, you grew up in a Pentecostal church and speaking in tongues is a pretty common thing during your church gatherings. Or um, maybe you come from a cessationist background, meaning um, those gifts of the spirits were reserved for the apostles uh, in the first century and they didn't continue on. Whatever your prior convictions are, um, just for a moment, leave them at the door. And let's just see what the Bible has to say and we'll go from there. So what's going on here? Well, in verse 6, um, we get an answer to this question. Luke tells us that um, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in, in their own language. So when we hear that they were speaking in tongues in this passage, we know that it means they were speaking actual languages that were intelligible that people could understand. Notice also that the, one, the ones who were hearing the language, they did not seem to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who simply gather because of all the uh, astounding commotion that's happening. So this astounding spiritual act was carried out by those who were filled by the Holy Spirit in such a way that those who were not filled by the Holy Spirit could witness this supernatural and astounding event. And not only is this event astounding in its own right, but the onlookers noticed that the group of people who were performing this supernatural miracle were Galileans. Now, it's okay if you don't know much about the Galileans. You're probably in good company. Galilee was a region north of Jerusalem. And uh, folks up there, they, uh, it, it, they were viewed as sim simple country folk. They were viewed as uneducated, unsophisticated. And so the reality is, is they were uneducated and unsophisticated. And that's why this was astounding. These folks didn't pick up Duolingo months in advance to be able to communicate with people in a different language. Rather, they were speaking languages that were not known to them, but were known to those hearing them. 
And Luke goes on to say that the languages that were being spoken were understandable to Jews who were in Jerusalem, but were from other surrounding areas. They spoke different languages and were amazed that these Galileans were from Israel, but yet were, were speaking their language. Verse 12 tells us again, they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In fact, they realized in verse 13 that the only logical explanation for, for some um, could, that they could come up with was, okay, these people must be drunk. They must have had too much wine. Now, for the record, I've been around some drunk people, and I got to tell you, when people are drunk, they're not at their, their most intelligible. They're not at their uh, like highest level of uh, intelligence. They're usually pretty dumb. Nevertheless, some, some people didn't. They didn't accept a supernatural event. And this should be a lesson to all of us. Without the Spirit moving in us, we sometimes won't realize when the Spirit is at work around us. I'm going to say that again. Without the Spirit moving in us, we sometimes won't realize when the Spirit is working around us. So that was the third one, being astounded. So the fourth one, the last thing we need to consider in the coming of the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit was foundational to the early church. And it's foundation, uh, it's foundational to us here in 2024. Let's remember that um, all that we've studied up to here in, in Acts chapter 2, up to this point, it was all preparation for what would come. It was in preparation for this moment that the apostles are experiencing, that the 120 people are experiencing. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now here it is. Then, from this moment on, things would be totally different for the people of God. This event is one of the foundational events that launched the age of the church. You see, there, there are different ages uh, for God's people throughout life. For example, we have the age of creation. We have the age of the patriarchs. We have the age of, uh, of the law, the age of wandering, the age of the promised land, the judges, the kings, exile, Jesus. And now we are in the age of the church. And this marked the age of the church. It was foundational. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit to which John the baptizer told us would come. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit to which Jesus referred to in Acts chapter 1 verse 5 when he told them to wait. This is the foundational event that marked the beginning of the church, the beginning of us here right now in this room in 2024. You see, this event changed everything. If you remember anything this morning, if you take anything away this morning, take this away. The Holy Spirit changed everything for the church. We need the Holy Spirit so that we can be the church who God created and called us to be. 
God graciously and powerfully sent his spirit to help us receive power and to be witnesses for Jesus. So we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit changes everything. It changes your life and as a community, it changes us as believers. There was a book written by uh, a man named Francis Chan. And um, I love Francis. I don't agree with everything he has to say, but this book was really great. It was called uh, Forgotten God. And the argument he has essentially states that oftentimes we treat the Holy Spirit as a lesser version of God, a, a sort of conscious to get us through our day rather than God himself, the third member of the Trinity ever present in creation and in the world that we see today. And too often, Francis says that too often we put the Bible in the place of the Spirit. Now hear me when I say I love the Bible. Like the Bible helps me understand my place in life. It helps me understand who God is, who I am, and, and my place within God's big story of redemption. The Bible, I mean, it was a huge factor in the push for the Protestant Reformation. The Word of God is extremely important. But it is no substitute for the Holy Spirit. You see, unfortunately us as Baptists, we're particularly good at this. And can I just say that if, if we're going to make an impact for the kingdom of God in Kings County, we aren't going to do it apart from the Spirit of God who united people back to speaking a common tongue so that we could show who God is by our love and by our actions in the world, showing the world that Jesus was killed for your sin on a cross and then was raised from the dead three days later. He did this for your sake. He did it for my sake. He did it for those in, in your world who don't yet know him. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the, empowers us with the boldness to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Church, I want us to be a people who are marked by the Holy Spirit a people who are making an impact in, in our world, like the, the people that God has placed in your life here in Hanford and Lamore and Kings County. I want to be a people that are different, that are set apart. That when people look at your life, they're like, man, how, what is different? Because they're living a different life. And you can just proudly, boldly say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning not by anything we've done, not by our own power, or by our own will. We come before you because of Jesus and all that he's done, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and the free eternal life that he's given us. We come before you because of him. And God, we, we just confess that oftentimes we neglect the gift that you have given us, the gift of your Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, who is our counselor, who is our comforter. Lord, I pray that you would do, do some incredible things through FBH. God, that we would see people restored back to you 
We would see families restored. We would see relationships restored. We would see life just flourishing. That we could tell the people you've put in our lives, it's because of Jesus. It's because of you. God, we know you're not done working. God, we submit ourselves to you for you to do and whatever you want. Help us to get out of the way. I recognize that maybe not everyone in this room or joining us online is a believer. There might be someone here right now who needs to surrender to God and say, God, I give you my life. Join in this family of faith and experience the good eternal life that Jesus offers. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to take that step. Pray along with me, the ABCs. And just say, hey, God, I admit that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I'm not perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't deserve your love, and I recognize you want to give it to me. So God, I recognize I am a sinner in need of a savior. And B, I believe that that savior is Jesus. That he took on the weight of my sin and my guilt and he nailed it to the cross. And that he freely has given me eternal life, good life. And C, God, I'm choosing to follow you every day. God, we recognize life isn't easy. And we know there may be seasons of waiting. There may be even a season of you saying no. God, I pray that you would give us the strength to handle that answer and give us the strength to wait if we need to wait. God, we love you so much. And we thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. And God, we, we pray all this in the name, the power, and the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.